Good morning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. It is sure good to see you here. Um, this is our first corporate worship service of the new year. And so it's good to see each one of you here. Uh, Brother Rick is going to give us the announcements, and then we will continue preparing for worship. Is this working, Dustin? You got it? hear me? Awesome. Uh, I've got several announcements. Um, first off, I'm going to start with the uh, with the um, grace bags for January, and it's um, for the Southeast Georgia Women's Center. And uh, things to donate are uh, triple size hand san hand sanitizer, um, nail polish, uh, chapstick, travel hand cream, and this um, this is actually going to be on the front desk out there. And I believe some got handed out today too, so I won't uh, spend any more time on that. Um, so this week's uh, events on uh, today, we're going to have the Lord's Supper and uh, the following uh, fellowship meal right afterwards. Um, Trail Life will be um, meeting at 6 p.m. on the 11th. And if you notice in the announcements on the back, there's a little bit of a mistake with American Heritage Girls. is isn't going to start until next month. Um, so uh, correct that. Um, we'll get that fixed for the next time. Um, Brother Ryan will be preaching at um, Lake Chapel Church uh, next Sunday. He'll be replacing... Uh, or preaching, standing in for uh, Pastor Sam Bennett. So if we could pray for him while pray for him while he's there, um, and uh, small groups will resume um, the new schedule uh, next next Sunday. Uh, if you noticed, uh, we've got this book in the mailboxes, and for you that don't have mailboxes, we need to get you some. But also, uh, there's still a couple copies plus this one out on the counter. If you have not received the free book, um, it's a quarterly book, I believe, right, sir? So it's a quarterly book, uh, free for taking. And then uh, if you don't have a mailbox, please let me know, and we'll get you mailboxes uh, assigned so that uh, next time we don't miss you on that. And uh, let me see, uh, Pastor Thomas, you have an announcement for today? Jolly Green Giant must have been there. <laughs> um, yes. On the book of the quarter, uh, this is a book that we encourage all the uh, members and friends of the church to read, and we will discuss it uh, each quarter at the last uh, family night suppers when we plan on discussing the book of the quarter. So we encourage you to pick up one and enjoy, enjoy reading it and be edified by it. Also, Gail and I want to thank you, all that were able to come out last night, as well as the Wayne Pierce small group. Had a great time, and it was good to see everybody. And I think we're all fed up and, and uh, plenty of food and, and plenty of fun. So thank you for, for participating in that, those that were able to. We appreciate it. Rick. And if you missed that, you missed the hayride, um, which uh, the kids were able to see uh, a bear, a giraffe, um, the raging bull. It, it was fun. It was a good time. I'm just doing that to, to focus on a little bit. It was, it was a great time. Um, and uh, the hymns today will be from the Trinity um, Hymnal except for the last one right after the sermon, that will be from the Hymns of Grace. And uh, I believe that's it. Um, anything further that I missed? Gotcha. Yeah, that, um, yep, I missed that, thank you. Um, any of the other announcements that are on there, uh, you can refer to the rest of the weeks. Um, I tried to uh, do just this week, so um, we'd be uh, more efficient with time. So if you could, um, let's uh, 
prepare our hearts for worship. As Brother Rick mentioned, our hymns today are from the Hymns of Grace, excuse me, the Trinity Hymnal. I'll say it backwards. It's the smaller blue hymnal. If you would, go ahead and take a copy of that hymnal. You might find hymn number 27, which we'll sing in a moment, <clears throat> verses 1 and 3. Great is thy faithfulness, and then we will remain standing for the invocation. And then following that, we will sing hymn number 81. If you would, please stand for the call to worship. <clears throat> We're seven days into 2024, and for those that have made New Year's resolutions, I'm sure by now we have broken many of them already. And in a world of unfaithfulness and uh, broken contracts and lack of faithfulness and consistency, it is a wonderful celebratory reality of Christians of the faithfulness of God. So listen, please, as we're called to worship, as we think about and exalt our God's faithfulness. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Yeah. 
Let us pray. Holy Father, we do bow now before you and confess, acknowledge, and rejoice in the reality of your faithfulness. Even this day already we are the recipients of thy faithful mercy, thy goodness, that attends us every day when we awake, follows us throughout all the days of our lives, and ushers us safely home into your presence. Lord, may we bow before you in sincere worship, acknowledging that you truly are indeed God, and beside you there is no other. Forgive us of our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our self-reliance, that we are often the gods of our own universe. But Lord, we come before you and we confess, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, faithful is our God. Bless your congregation as we assemble now to worship, and may your name be honored, your people edified, and those that know not Christ be brought to repentance. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hymn number 81, 81, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
Please be seated. If you would take a copy of the scriptures and turn in your Bible to Psalm 54 as we continue our consecutive reading through the Psalms. If you have noticed, Psalm 52 through 55 have been psalms where David has not just felt but has been betrayed. And so he continues that theme in Psalm 54. If you remember, he went and rescued a town uh, from the Philistines, and then Saul heard he was in that town with his men. So uh, Saul figured he could come trap him in that town because it had walls and, and gates. And, and he said, David has imprisoned himself, so now I can capture him. And, of course, God uh, lets David know that, and David flees to the wilderness of Ziph. But even there, the, the folks around that wilderness betrayed him to Saul. Uh, we know the story. Saul is not successful in capturing him. But each time David runs up against this, he, he does what? He writes a song, right? Well, these songs are actually prayers. And he takes his, his concerns to God. And he prays to God. Notice in this psalm, he will use three different names or titles for God. He uses Elohim throughout most of the psalm. And in, and in chapter uh, verse 4, he'll use Elohim as well as Adonai. But he invokes a name in the very first verse, and that name is Yahweh. He prays that the name of God would be honored, that God would do so to magnify and glorify his own name, that he would hear and answer David's prayers. And so he prayed in that great and glorious name of Yahweh, which, dear ones, today we have a great and glorious name that we pray in. And it is no less a name, it is no less a powerful God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because now when we pray to, to Yahweh, we invoke the name of Jesus Christ. And so let's read this, this psalm together. Let's see this petition of David as he continues the theme of betrayal. The word of God reads, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Thus reads the word of our God, and may his people say. Amen. Brings us to our time of corporate prayer today. We have purposed, as, as the elders of Emmanuel Baptist Church, this year, to, we have purposed each year, to pray for families um, during our time of corporate prayer, families of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And it seems like we always start the list, and then we get distracted by immediate needs, and so we t 
tend to not make it all the way through the list. Uh, this year we have purpose to do that, and we have put it on a calendar. So it will be scheduled, and we will pray for you. Now, the elders do pray for you uh, during our elders' meetings, but we would like to make it a, a matter of corporate prayer that each family here would be prayed for by the whole congregation as we lift your name up to the Lord. This week, our families are uh, Ken and Ashley Wiley, uh, Sister Jean York, and Sister uh, Ned Youngblood. Uh, Sister Jean has uh, given me her concern. She wants, uh, she wants to see her children and grandchildren come to saving faith in the Lord, and she wants to see them faithful in following the Lord and faithful in church covenant commitment. And so we will lift these things up to the Lord. Uh, Brother Ken and Sister Ashley uh, said that they would, we would pray that they would be more faithful to rightly utilize the means of grace uh, for their spiritual growth and Christ-likeness. And Sister Ned Youngblood, she has had numerous health issues, it seems, one after another. And so we would lift her up to our sovereign God, praying that he would grant relief and healing for these. So let, let us go to the Lord. Let's, let's go to our wonderful God, the same God whom David cried to when he was in trouble. Let us go to this powerful God. Holy Father, ruler of all, creator of all, you who do not dwell in the tents of men, you who, it has been said, the earth is your footstool. You span the heaven and the heaven of heavens with your right hand. You are almighty. What could we ask, Father, that you would not do, that you could not do? We could bring great petitions, small petitions. And yet you are a God who hears the voice of your children. And as David wrote, you are faithful to answer our prayers for your great and holy name. That your name would be magnified. Because when you answer our prayers, we don't thank each other. We don't thank ourselves. We thank you. We praise you. We lift high your holy name. And so it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we lift these petitions now, Father. We pray for Sister Jean York. We thank you for her. We praise you that she's a faithful member of this congregation. That she's a wonderful servant of Christ. And we do, with her, pray for the salvation of her children and her grandchildren. And we, we ask you, Holy Father, that you would grant her the desires of her heart, that she would see them growing in Christ-likeness and being faithful in covenant community with your church. Father, would you do this for your great name? And we lift up Ken and Ashley Wiley. We know they have many concerns, many things that that go on in their day-to-day -day lives, Father. And yet their number one main concern is that they would grow in Christ-likeness. So, Father, would you grant them their petition? Would you help them to truly, faithfully, rightly, 
Utilize the means of grace you have given for their sanctification. We thank you for them. We thank you for the blessing that they are to this family, to this community. Father, we lift up Sister Ned Youngblood. What a wonderful, godly woman she is. But Father, she has been, in, in your frowning providence, beset with one uh, physical ailment after another. And so, Father, we pray that you would smile upon her, grant her relief, grant her healing. And Father, that you would uh, cause it, uh, make it possible for her to once again gather with your saints. That she would uh, uh, once again know the true fellowship of the saints as we gather for corporate worship. Would you make that possible for her? Would you bless her? We thank you for her. We thank you that she is a wonderful woman of prayer. Anybody that knows her knows she's a, she's a prayer warrior. And so, Father, we lift her up as she lifts up so many others. We pray your blessings upon her. Now, Father, would you bless Pastor Tyler as he even now is preaching at Rome Primitive Baptist Church? Would you bless the ministry of your word? Would you send your word forth in all its power that you would be magnified, that Christ would be made much of, that sinners would be saved, and that saints would be edified and sanctified. And Father, would you do this for your name, for your name's sake, for Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You would stand now and sing with me uh, hymn number 497, Jesus, Savior, Pilot Me. Please be seated. 
Richard Baxter was a prominent 17th century Puritan preacher. He was a prolific writer. He wrote over 200 books. Uh, a couple of the well-known books that are still in circulation today and, and often uh, used. One is The Saints' Everlasting Rest, which is a great encouragement. Uh, to us in our journey. The other is the Reformed Pastor, uh, which has been used by ministers, um, I suppose since the time he's written it, about um, pastoral theology. And uh, sure see, when you read the book, you sure see differences in practices uh, from the 17th century to the 21st century. He was forbidden to preach. He was, he was a chaplain in the parliamentary army and at the same time, he was instrumental in having the king reinstalled, king of England reinstalled uh, re to the throne. And as a peacemaker and something of a moderate, he always seemed to be in the hot seat, as often counselors are. They get it from both sides. And as he was trying to uh, bring some peace in his country. And he was persecuted for a number of years. He spent uh, almost two years in prison. Uh, he was forbidden to preach. Uh, he could not even go back to uh, his hometown and where his parish was. They forbid him to go there. Um, and it was during that time that he made a statement that has been a very famous statement, at least among Reformed ministers, uh, probably since, again, since the time he uttered it. But he said, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. Now, that saying by Baxter is a catalyst for a series of sermons that we have planned for this year, 2024. Um, Pastor John will be preaching next in uh, March uh, using that general theme of preaching as a dying man to dying people. And the title of the entire series is, If I Had But One Sermon to Preach. And so Pastor John will be preaching in March, Pastor Tyler in June, uh, the Lord willing. Uh, we have scheduled Pastor Shane Waters from Sovereign Grace uh, to be preaching on that topic in September and then gifted our gifted brother Ryan is to close this year out in December 29th with that same theme. So we're starting the year with it and we're ending the year with that, with that series of messages spread out over, over the year if I had but one sermon to preach. Since I'm the oldest and the minister would have heart issues, they figured I better go first. Or I might not get my turn. So I'm up, I'm up today to go first with this. Now this saying has been, a, it's really been a plaque on my study wall for years. I referenced it many times years ago when I was at the first church I ever tried to pastor in Culloden, Georgia. And one of the sisters there put it in cross stitch for me and it, it hung on my study wall. And then some years later, Sister Chloe said, it, it needs a better frame because I just had it in something and she came along and platted it and put it in a nice frame and it's, it's still my, my study here 
But it's been a number of years ago now. It's probably been 15, 20 years ago, at least 15, probably more like 20 years ago now. The saying took on real life. I thought it had real life, but it took on real life. I had preached um, uh, a meeting at a church, and um, then I had I was invited to go back, and I was I think supply preaching like Pastor Tyler is today. I was going back to preach on a on a Sunday following that meeting, and that was some four, five, six months after I had been there before. And as I was walking across the parking lot, headed toward the the church building I heard someone calling my name and I stopped and turned around and there was a lady walking towards me and she came up to me and she greeted me and she said I want you to know the last sermon my husband ever heard is what you preached when you were here before and I was doing some scrambling in my brain what did I preach when I was here before what was the last sermon that man ever heard so it really became very personal at that moment to me, very real. And so we're preaching a series of sermons on what if, what, if I had but one sermon to preach, but let me flip it and ask you the question, what if you only had one sermon to hear? What do you want to hear? What is critical? What's most important? What if this is the last sermon you hear? That was part of our, I reckon, our fifth Sunday night with our reflection on that of teaching us to have a heart of wisdom and to be able to number our days and um, realizing the transient nature of, of mankind. Well, with that in mind, I encourage you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to read the first 13 verses, but my focus will be primarily on verse number eight. Now, after preaching some time, um, you tend to go back to text and preach them more than once. And I have preached this passage over the years, I don't know the number of times, but more than once. I'm not sure it was the first time, but I know something over 35 years ago, I preached this, 1988, I preached this text. Um, at a church that no longer exists. It's, it's, it's gone out of existence. Um, I preached it the last time, or I attempted to preach it the last time, less than three years ago from right here, in August of 21. So I'm not worried about repeating it in the sense that that's one of the things preachers do is they call you to remember things. In fact, that's part of the context of what we'll be seeing in this passage. Uh, as we uh, try to get into it today. So I want to read now in our hearing, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll read the first 13 verses of this, this chapter. Let us hear God's word. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he 
competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound, which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, this is the shift here. He remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. May God be pleased to bless his word and may his people say. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Holy Father, we realize in some ways the great task that lies before us, both as speaker and as hearers of your word. And we pray for grace. I pray, Lord, for grace that I may be able to speak fluently with a ready turn of thought, that I may have unction from on high. And Lord, have I know I, I don't think I have any desire to lean upon my own self, but Lord, if I do, take that away. And may our trust our confidence and our hope our support be found totally in you who can make your word who does make your word sharper than a two-edged sword so give us as hearers ears to hear minds to comprehend wills that are submissive to your will lord exalt jesus i pray Strengthen your people. Encourage them. And Father, those present that do not know Jesus Christ, perhaps those whose love has grown cold or indifferent, and those who never have known him or professed him, speak to their hearts and shine that beautiful living light into their minds so that they may have life and may exalt Christ and be one and part and a member of the great family of God. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Concerning this verse, there is a quote that you have on your notes by B.B. Warfield, verse 8. And in verse 8, Warfield wrote, this sentence is pregnant enough to reveal at once the central thought of Paul's gospel and the citadel of his own strength. Amid all the surrounding temptations, all the encompassing dangers, Paul bids Timothy to bear in mind 
as the sufficing source of abounding strength, the great and central doctrine, the great central fact, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I agree with Warfield. This is a very full text and a very full passage in a number of verses that I've read in our hearing. And the temptation is to try to say more than probably I ought to say in one standing or one sermon. And in the end result, saying probably maybe nothing. So what I want to do today is keep it simple. And uh, I want to look at two things. I want to look at the context of the statement. And then I want us to consider the content of the statement. So that's, that's the, our simple way forward. What is the context of this statement? And then what does Paul say? So with that in mind, we want to begin with the immediate context. And by that, I mean 2 Timothy. Generally, this book is, real, is recognized as the Apostle Paul's last letter. And as you would imagine, one's last words are usually very personal. And this probably is one of the most personal epistles of the Apostle Paul. I wouldn't say he's not, I'm not trying to say he's not transparent in other uh, epistles that he wrote, but there certainly is a transparency in 2 Timothy. And perhaps it's a transparency that can only come when one realizes that he's already being poured out and the time of his departure was at hand. And so there, this is Paul's last letter. That's the way I'm approaching it. It's very personal. And if we were to summarize the purpose of the letter and say that the purpose is maybe small number one, not as large as number two here is what I want to say, but the small letter A or Roman numeral one is, Timothy, do your best to come to me because I'm near death. Hurry, come see me. That's purpose number one of the letter. Purpose number two of the letter, it's Timothy. Um, endure the difficulties of being a Christian and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be a good soldier. Defend the faith. Pass on the faith. Teach the faith. And so I would say that's, in summary, the purpose of this book. Pretty, pretty simple. Come see me quick. And Timothy, be a good soldier. In 2 Timothy, as I've already alluded to, we're given insight, uh, I think, into the Apostle Paul's physical, emotional, and spiritual state of being. We know that Paul is in prison. He tells us that he is in prison in uh, the verses that I read. He talks about being bound with chains as a criminal. So we know that, that Paul is in prison at this time. He refers to that also in chapter 1, verse 8, of being a prisoner. So Paul is in prison. Uh, Jeffrey Wilson writes of verse number 9 of chapter 2, he says that the strength of Paul's language indicates how deeply he felt the shame and degradation of his imprisonment. 
And I think sometimes we just pass over that. Oh, well, he's jailed. And, um, but that comes with certain mental and emotional um, challenges, let's say. Probably the prison that he's in is what's called the Mermentine prison. He's not under house arrest here. But he is in, a, in a, one of the most difficult prisons uh, that, there, that there was. John MacArthur writes of, of this imprisonment and where Paul is. He says it's a small, dark, bare stone dungeon whose only entrance was a hole in the ceiling. And they would just let prisoners down by rope or ladder and then pull it out. So there has a hole in the ceiling. It's a, it's a dungeon whose only entrance was a hole in the ceiling, scarcely large enough for one person to pass through. The dungeon itself is not large, about half the size of a small one-car garage. Yet it was sometimes used to hold as many as 40 prisoners. The discomfort, the dark, the stench, the misery were almost unbearable. Well, we don't... I think he's right in where Paul was at this time. But we do know that Paul is suffering deprivations of the most basic needs because he'll say, bring the coat that I left. Winter's coming. I'm cold. Uh, so we know that he is, his situation is, 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 is very Spartan at best. We also know not only is he in prison, but as he, as he is in prison, he gets word he gets some communication and the communication he is getting is not that encouraging in fact there are problems in the church in chapter 2 verses 14 really through chapter 4 verse 5 he will begin to address some of the problems that are facing believers and that are happening in the church um, there are false teachers and there will be a time Difficult times are there, but there will be a time coming where people will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear it. And they'll get their own teachers that will listen to what they want to hear and tickle their ears with it. There have been defections. Defections of previously some faithful men are no longer walking the walk. Chapter 4, verse 10, and again verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4 but chapter 4 verse 10 for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me he's left him verses 14 through 16 Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm the Lord will repay him according to his deeds beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message at my first defense no one came to stand by me but all deserted me so faithful men have defected from the faith. In addition to that, there are false teachers. There are those that are just outright hostile, such as Alexander, to the gospel and have withstood Paul in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. I think we get something of the emotional burdens that Paul is bearing here in, 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 in verse uh, number 10. And, and his concern and his love of chapter 2 that I read, he said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. There's, there's, he's under stress. He's under physical duress. He's under emotional and probably spiritual 
at least warfare. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, I think, mentions this, and I think maybe here is more of an allusion, allusion to it, but in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, Paul talks about the various sufferings that he has gone through. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's gone without food. He is, he's gone lonely. He's gone without sleep. And he, he lists out a whole list of, of, of uh, sufferings that he's experienced. And then at the close of that list, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, 28, the apostle says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul has on him the love of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in addition to all the physical things that have happened to him, he has this concern for the church. I appreciate what the Puritan John Trapp wrote. He said, Either our beds are soft or our hearts hard that can rest when the church is at unrest, that feel not our brother's hard cords through our soft beds. And so Paul, yes, he's in prison. His physical situation's rough. But there's also the status of what's going on in the church, the infant church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is taking its toll as well on the apostle. And surely, surely Paul, who loved Timothy like a son and calls him a son, I think three times in the epistles, surely he's concerned with Timothy, for Timothy. And then that takes us then to the next point. That is, we are given insights in 2 Timothy of the struggles and challenges that Timothy now is facing. Even this morning, I found it somewhat encouraging meditation and prayer to think about who God uses in His service. In writing to the Corinthians, the apostle said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Who is Timothy? Is he a superhero? No. And the challenges that are before him are more than daunting. We look back over the landscape of the people God used throughout history and you begin to reflect on these instruments God uses. He uses Abraham. And we think of Father Abraham and he's faithful. He's a friend of God. Yes. But you read the beginning of his story and out of fear, he lies about Sarah. That she's not my wife. She's but my sister. Then we move on and we go to Moses and here is a mighty man of God who through God through him God brings all kinds of miracles and deliverance and yet if you do a kind of a personal study of Moses you're going to you're going to see the man had some anger issues he struggled with some anger at times very understandably but he did <laughs> 
Then we move on and we, we, we're getting into the promised land. And who is it that God uses to open, as it were, the, the portal, the gate to get into the promised land? A prostitute named Rahab. And then as we just got through in our Christmas series, you move from that to two widows, Ruth and Naomi. These are the people God uses to continue the very lineage of Jesus Christ. And the birth will be in Bethlehem. And we move forward. We go to David. King David. Mighty David. Man, he is a warrior. I've said often, I wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley. And he'd be my enemy. He was a warrior. Yeah, but David had some issues. He had some issues with lust, with pride. He had some problems. And that you see that the scripture was very honest about that with David. And then we move on to the New Testament. It opens up, and who's God using? Mary. A young woman who is unmarried, and God will use her as a vessel to bring his, his only begotten son into the world. Oh, but then we get to the apostles. Yeah. All sterling men, right? No. No. Weak. And so Paul writes, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Some were. But many came from very humble beginnings. Fishermen. Blue collar. Laborers. And he uses all kinds of people throughout the history of the Bible. These are the kinds of people that he uses now we get to timothy and paul says timothy to timothy let no man despise you for your youth it's hard to be a pastor an elder and especially to have the charges that timothy paul brought to timothy when you're a young man and a lot of people look at you as a i don't want to be obscene but a snot-nosed kid and he has got to deal with that don't let anybody Hold your youth against you, Timothy. But be an example of godliness. There is the nature of Timothy. And, and I, I really, uh, I kind of lean away from this, but I'll mention it. A lot of people think of Timothy as being very, very timid. I'm not sure about that. I don't know that. Uh, it, it's not unusual. Let me back up and say it this way. It's not unusual for God to call people into his ministry that can't put two words together. Honestly that are afraid of their shadow. But he develops them. And he brings them into, into men of God. They're not the greatest orators. They're not the great... You know, Paulus said that of himself. He's not a great orator. He's not like Apollos. So I don't know if Timothy was timid, but he was young, and I can see with his youth there are some issues that go along with that that he has to deal with, that he has to overcome. And then the work that Paul is asking Timothy to do is dangerous. And it's challenging. He's in Ephesus to withstand erroneous doctrine and particular people and to teach sound doctrine and to live a godly life and defend the faith and advance the faith. And then there's Timothy's personal loss. He reads, he knows where Paul is, but he reads this letter he gets from the Apostle Paul as his mentor. And where's Paul? Paul's an old man. He's in prison. Time of my departure is at hand. And that has to be a loss to Timothy. 
Those of us that have lost parents, how many times have you thought, oh, I would love to be able to ask my, my, my case, my mom or dad, but my, I'd love to be able to ask my dad this. Can't do it. So Timothy is losing Paul. That's got to be tough. In Mounts' commentary on Timothy, he said, Paul, talking about verse, these verses, and particularly verse 8, he says, Paul is not instructing Timothy, but rather consoling and encouraging him. And he's saying to Timothy, think about and understand the cost of discipleship, Timothy. And he uses those three analogies that are very, very difficult. The um, analogy of a soldier, be a good soldier, Timothy. The analogy of an athlete, which would have been very pronounced. You'd think of the Roman, but you think of the, 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 the Greek influence on the Roman culture. And we think, though, this is where the Olympics started. And, and so absolutely he would, he would know about that. And so you, you got to compete like an athlete. And then the farmer. This is rigorous work, Timothy. Understand the work. Now be faithful to the work. And secondly, I would mention the, what I'll call the historical and theological context. And to me, or I think, I'll, I'll put it this way, let me back up. The historical and theological context is cross-bearing. That's, that's the historical and theological context. Bearing your cross. I've already mentioned the rigors of, of discipleship in the first seven verses of chapter 2 that we read where Paul will list out some of the rigors of that. But then there's also the certainty of suffering. Uh, Paul is suffering. Why is he suffering? Why is he bound with chains? He's bound with chains because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this cause I'm suffering. For this cause I'm in chains, Timothy. And not only that, Timothy, but let's go beyond the, the minister of the gospel. Let's just go to, to the disciples of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This isn't... This isn't isolated to Timothy alone. All those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. So there's the certainty of suffering. And I think the early church was convinced that to live for Christ, one must be prepared to suffer for Christ, to take up their cross and follow Christ. That is a basic proclamation of Christianity. And suffering is inescapable. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, in fact, Paul will say, we are destined to suffer. As one has said, eventually we find ourselves in situations that make our hearts sink, our bones feel dry, and our souls heavy and crushed. And if you followed Christ any distance, you know that. I've had my best days in Christ crushed in a nanosecond by a situation, an unthoughtful word, an attack, a doubt, and you just move from like the heights and realms of glory as it were all of a sudden to what's the point? 
Why is that so? Why, why is Paul in chains? Why is he saying that if you're going to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted? Why is he saying that? What's the reality behind that? What's the theology behind that? Well, the theology behind that is John 3.19. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the theology. Light and dark do not mix. They do not go well. They're not play buddies. They're enemies. And to this very day, this hostility remains. And the amazing part of this, there's a lot of amazing parts. One amazing part of this is the very truth, the very one, the very message that can help that sinner who is bound in sin and chains and knows not Christ, the very one that can help him, he rejects. So Jesus taught on the cost of discipleship and he said to his 12 in Matthew 10, he said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. But Jesus didn't just leave it with the twelve. He said to the disciples in general who followed him, Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, that means you, that means me, if you will follow Christ, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's a poem I put in your notes. It's by Amy Carmichael. It's one I've used through the years more than once. It's called No Scar. Let's, let's just read that poem right now. It goes to this theological background, I think, of what's undergirding what Paul says to Timothy here. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? Paul is telling Timothy, you're going to be scarred. You're going to be persecuted. And the basic theology behind that is because darkness hates light. And then we come after that. Let's consider for just a moment now the content. We've looked at the context. So what is it Paul says to Timothy in that context? Verse 8, we have a description of Jesus. 
He's referred to as Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. That is the way he's defined. The offspring of David. This is his lineage. This is his humanity. Jesus is truly man. He's risen from the dead. He is the Son of God. He is truly God. Jesus Christ is truly man. He's truly God. This is the God-man. And actually, this is the only place in Timothy he uses in this particular order. Everywhere else, it's, it's, the order's flipped, which is interesting. The word risen is in the perfect tense. It emphasizes not just the historical fact that Jesus is risen, but rather the result of the resurrection. Not simply was, he's, not simply was Jesus raised, but he is risen. He is the risen Lord now. He is Christ forever risen, forever present in His resurrection power. That's the emphasis behind the tense. Paul says that these truths are central to the gospel he preaches. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David has preached in my gospel. You want to know what Paul preached? This is what he preached. This is the Warp and woof of it, I suppose we would say. It reminds me, if you would, turn over to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. It reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Romans as he opened that epistle. Romans 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God, He promised before, He promised the gospel before through his prophets and all his scriptures. What's it concerned? His son. Who is his son? He descended from David. According to the flesh, he is truly man. And he was declared to be the son of God. Christ, he is the son of God. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is the attestation of his divinity, of his godheadness. And it's because Paul preaches this message, he's in prison. But he also says, even though he's bound, he says in verse 9, the latter part of the, the, latter part of the verse, but the word of God is not bound. I'm bound, I'm in chains, but God's word isn't. And I think about John chapter 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it or overwhelm it. Yes, there is a conflict. There's an animosity. We could hail it all the way back to Genesis 3. But the darkness does not overwhelm or extinguish the light. And yet in light of all of this, of all that Paul is dealing with, all that he knows Timothy's already dealing with and will yet to deal with, he exhorts him, persevere, endure. 
Stand fast. He does it based on several, several realities. Back in chapter 1, he does it based really on his parentage. Timothy, remember your mother and your grandmother and how you were raised and from a child you know the scriptures. Remember, Timothy, based on that, persevere. Stand fast, Timothy. Not only remember that, Timothy, but remember and remind yourself of your calling. In chapter 1, verse 6, remember your ordination. Remember not only who you are, but what you are. Now, when I was growing up, that's what my folks would often tell me. I'd be going out somewhere and they would say, remember who you are, who you, who you represent, and what you're about. And he tells Timothy that. And then there's Paul's own example. Timothy, he could say, remember me. And I'm in bonds and I'm in chains and I've suffered and it's because of the gospel. Timothy, don't be discouraged by discouragements. But the most powerful argument for Timothy to persevere is verse 8. The risen Christ. There is an optimism and a triumphalism that permeates 2 Timothy. It's not a dark book. It's, it's, as I said, it's very transparent. And there's a lot of moving parts, as it were, to it. But it's not a dark book. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day when he has been entrusted to me. What has been entrusted to me? I know whom I believe. He says in chapter 2, verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those that are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And again, he says in chapter 2, verses uh, 7 and 8, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And goes on saying, of course, not only me, but all those that love his appearing. So Paul exhorts Timothy, remember. And this has been a motif in Timothy, in 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 1, I remember you constantly. Chapter 1, verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Chapter 1, verse 6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 14, remind them of these things. Remember, 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 remind, remind, remind. The word remember is in the present tense. It means continually remember. Exercise your memory, recollect, but that has impact on the way you live and the way you think. As one has noted, God is into remembering because we fallen creatures have a tendency to forget. God gave the Passover. Why? Remember when you come into the land who you are and what you've been delivered from. The book of Deuteronomy. What's the book of Deuteronomy? It's the repeating of the law. Remember. Remember who you are. Remember who God is. Remember the law God has given you. The crossing of the Jordan. What marked, what marked the crossing of the Jordan River when Israel crossed into the promised land across the Jordan? What did they do? They took stones out of the bottom, put them on the side, took stones in the middle from the side, put in the bottom, and they built there 
a reminder so that when they saw those stones, they would remember the crossing of Jordan, how God delivered them. Oh, what's today? The Lord's Day. Big neon flashing letters. Remember, remember, remember. And we need that every week. Remember, remember what? Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's what we celebrate today. That's who we worship today. A risen Savior. Oh, the Lord's Supper. What, what is it? Do this. What? And remember, remember, remembrance. I don't think I'm the only one that needs jostling into remembering. I suspect as I look over this congregation, these people who I know and who I love, you need to be reminded to remember. So why is this my, if I only had but one sermon to preach, why would this be it? Because our enemy is ruthless. And he is relentless. And I know that the church is called to be a buttress and pillar of the truth. But I know that being that buttress and pillar of the truth means conflict. Because darkness and light do not commingle. And when you shine a light on something, darkness rejects it. I know and I believe I've experienced in my life and I have no reason to think they'll, it will cease to be this after my life is done that fierce wolves will seek to destroy you individually and this church corporately. I don't hope I don't live in a fairy tale. I hope you don't either. And they lived happily ever after. That would be wonderful, but not in this, not on this globe. Light and darkness are enemies. There is a conflict. My enemy is relentless. And I know that when I'm dead and gone, that there will be problems facing Emmanuel Baptist Church and you as a believer. And I know it's easy to get sidetracked, to get so busy and then to get overwhelmed, and then to get frustrated, and then just go, I surrender. I'm tired of pulling the wagon. I don't want to pull it anymore. I want to ride. I know that defections, that loss, there will be losses and there will be broken fellowship, and I know how hard that is. I think you know, I know that many of you know as well as I do the pain of seeing someone defect to leave the faith. Someone that you love, that you've invested wonderful resource of time into and your love into. To just be off in Bypath Meadow. You know that, don't you? And I know what that does to the spirit. And do I think it'll ever happen again? Yes, I do. And I pray it's not one of you.
But I know the reality is it probably will be. And you will break our hearts. And you will cause us to look in the mirror and go, what is going on? We all need encouragement. And we all need reminding of our basic focus and goal. Lest we get discouraged and fall in the way. And what is that basic focus and encouragement? Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. I know that remaining sin is a problem. I know it's a problem in my life. I know it's a problem in your life. I know that the, the persons that we would think here that are the most holy, and, and in fact are, no doubt, probably the most holy, I know that in their life there's remaining sin. And I know what remaining sin will do. You fight it. And you lose sometimes. And you lose too many times, honestly. And I know that as remaining sin exists, that we will offend one another. Any man that's not perfect with his speech is a is perfect man. Any man that offends not with his tongue is a perfect man. I've said, I don't, I don't know any of those guys. I'm not one of them, and you're not either. I've offended you, and you have offended me. How are we going to live with one another? One another? How are we going to get over that? And I know that if we don't keep our focus right, we will get into minutiae that will cause confusion and disruption, and we'll no longer be a pillar of the truth It'll be a house of confusion and, and we won't have any real purpose or direction. Certainly will not be honoring Christ. And I know that true repentance can be hard. You know why it's, you know why it's so hard? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Just remember, you know why this is so. True repentance is so hard, not because we find it hard to say, God forgive me, but it's so hard because I find it so hard to believe that God will forgive me by his grace through Jesus Christ my Lord. Remember. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Because I love you as a people and I know that trials and temptations are real and that you will not escape them. I know that there will be disappointments. I know there will be disagreements. I know I live in a hostile world. You live in a hostile world. And I know that your love for Christ can get on the rocks and can wane just like mine. And I know that commitment, covenant commitment to one another, to Christ, in the body of Christ we call the church I know that they can falter and I know even as we looked at last Lord Day, Lord's Day evening I know that death is real my own even though I don't think any of us ever comprehend that we say it but I don't think we really get it but I know death is real my own and perhaps more difficult others. I know that every one of you sitting in this room 
will die. And everything and everyone you love will die. And I know my great enemy is death, and I hate it. And my only hope and my great consolation is that, is to remember Jesus Christ, the seed of David, the Son of God, risen from the dead. Beloved, God bless you. I hope if you only had one sermon to hear, if you've heard a sermon that will stir you up, encourage you, cause you to think, reflect, and be faithful to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your people. We thank you for this congregation that's gathered here this day. We miss, of course, those who are unable to be with us because of sickness or responsibilities, perhaps a frowning providence. But Lord, we're grateful we could have this time together. And while the message has been somber and sober in many ways, I trust that, Lord, it also has been an encouragement to your people. That we will be stirred up by your great love, by the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord, who loved us and gave himself for us. He was crucified, that was buried, and on the third day rose again. Oh, Lord, our God, help your people to remember. And in remembering, may they persevere, may they be encouraged in the faith. I pray in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. I want to stand together and sing out of the Hymns of Grace, the bigger book, uh, Hymn 310. And we will sing uh, verses 1 and 3 of the Resurrection Hymn. I said, yeah, I said it right. Hymns of Grace, 310.
may be seated. Thank you for that message, Pastor Thomas. It is uh, fitting that we would be celebrating the Lord's Supper, which is in itself uh, a remembrance. I'd like to read a portion of scripture, and this is probably not something that we normally have read uh, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but I'm going to read from the writings of Paul and the book of Romans in Romans chapter 7. He writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what is what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we come to the Lord's table, we don't come as people who have somehow attained the worthiness of our Lord. We, we have not gotten to a place in our lives where we can say, I am worthy. I am sinless. I have reached a point where, where, where I deserve this. No. We are still waging the war, the same war the apostle wrote about. But we also have the solution, the Lord Jesus Christ. For, yes, he, he died, paying the penalty for, for the penalty we deserve. And not just for our past sins. When you're saved, you're, you're not just given a clean slate and say, okay, all your past sins are removed and now it's up to you. Now you must work. No. Every sin, past, present, future, Jesus paid with his broken body and his spilt blood. We must remember that each and every day. And when you sin, don't let your sin drive you away from Christ. Don't let your sin drive you away from the Word. But let your sin drive you to Christ. Flee to Christ. And so as we partake of this, this blessed table, let's be driven to Christ. Let's come to Him for the forgiveness that only comes through Him. No, we don't come in our own worth. We come in the worth of Christ. We approach this table because Christ is worthy. And we remember that He has paid the penalty for our sins. And we look forward to that glorious day when we shall behold Him face to face. And so let us, at this time, 
partake of this wonderful, wonderful remembrance as we look to please our Savior, as we look to live for our Savior, but as we do so in His strength and by the grace that is given to us through Him. We start over here, and if you would come forward and take the, the uh, elements and take them back to your seats. I do want to say this. If you are visiting with us, we do uh, practice open communion, but we have a guarded table. And we say we have a guarded table because if, if you're not a baptized believer, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this table is not for you. This is for God's people. This is for those who, who have a saving faith in Christ. This is this is about having a saving faith. This is a, a public pronouncement that you do, in fact, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have repented of your sins and you continue to do so. This is for God's people who are in faithful covenant relationship with their church. So if you're visiting and, and you are in faithful covenant with your church, you are more than welcome to join us. If, if you are not, if you're under the discipline of a local church, this table, once again, is not for you. You must reconcile to your congregation before you are allowed to partake of this table. But I, I invite you all, uh, as you are qualified, uh, in Christ Jesus to partake of this table.
know, at the very center of this celebration, the Lord's table, what we are saying publicly as a congregation together, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that his sacrifice was sufficient before God the Father. And also I believe that he rose from the dead and he is no longer dead, but he is alive praying for me even now. And I believe that he will come again and I will see him face to face. That is what we're saying. That is the statement we are making. At this time, Pastor Thomas, would you offer a word of thanks to God for this bread which represents his broken body? Dear Father, we would in thanksgiving lift our voices to you for the great salvation that is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mm. For communion that we have with you through the Holy Spirit. And Father, for our promised and assured life and glory through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. We pray that you would bless this element that we hold in our hand. Lord, that as we receive it, we do so with thanksgiving and remembrance of our Savior. Not only, Lord, of his perfect life and his life-giving death, but also of his promised return. Feed your people, Lord. Bless them. Nurture their souls. And thank you for our Savior, in whose name I say. Amen. And when he had given thanks, he took the bread and broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, not only is this a personal statement that I believe, but this is us together saying that I believe that you believe. I believe that you are a part of Christ just as much as I am a part of Christ. And so we partake of this together as the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you who are our God, our Savior, you who are faithful to the Father and obedient on our behalf. You who had given your church of old types and shadows. There was much blood spilt in the old covenant. But we know that all that blood that was spilt didn't even begin to compare to the blood that you spilled. For as you said that the life was in the blood, so eternal life was in your blood. 
And you've shed it for us. We thank you. Because throughout history, there has been no one, there has been no other Savior who could shed his blood and atone for our sins, save you. We are thankful for that. We are thankful that you willingly shed your blood on our behalf and that through which we now have redemption. You have purchased our redemption. And we thank you and praise you for that. As we partake of this wine and juice now, Father, cause us to remember Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen from the dead. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dear ones, children of the living God, let us remember what Christ Jesus has done for us. As we were exhorted in the sermon, let us remember Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. Let us be faithful in sharing those memories those facts, those life-giving truths to all we come in contact with. And may we praise God and look forward to his return. Now, if you would stand for the benediction, and we will close with the doxology. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.